against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this time to come to your word. Lord, just still amazed at uh, your grace uh, to Tommy and Kristen. Thank you for that. We celebrate that this evening. And we're thankful that we are given, Lord, your truth. And oftentimes in forms, it's not easy to understand. Uh, Lord, this book judges that we're walking through this summer, you know, is difficult for us. And so we pray that as we sit under your word and as we absorb and listen to your truth shared to us, that we would, with humility, oh Lord, encounter it. And that, Holy Spirit, you would encourage and challenge us, but most of all, you would surround us with your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight, we begin episode two of our summer series, as I said last week, creatively entitled Judges in the Book of Judges. And uh, we're going to kind of jump in and see that this cycle that began in chapter one is going to be repeated. And cycles are interesting because we live in a world of cycles. We live in the cycle of seasons, which we all know summer has unfortunately arrived, which means the sun is resting on Miami for the next three to four months. We, we live in a world of cycles with sleep and rim cycles, political cycles, which is exhausting, and fashion cycles. I mean, guys, fanny packs are back. They're back. Next is trapper keepers. You know, I mean, it's, it's so get your trapper keeper now before they get expensive and Gucci puts a label on them. You know what I mean? We live in a world of cycles, but we also create cycles ourselves. All of us have different cycles that we create, but we create them. So whether it's a, a dietary cycle that you follow at different times in the year or an exercise cycle or a social media cycle where you're like, that's it, I'm done, and then you deactivate, and then two weeks later you're back on, or whether it is a Netflix documentary cycle, have you gotten in those, where you're just like, you just keep going, and you're the rabbit hole just keeps going deeper, or if you're like me, you have an office cycle where every two years you have to rewatch The Office, you got that itch, you're like, I think I need to watch it again. And then you just, it happens every two years. And if, uh, if you're like me, you have some bizarre cycles. One of my bizarre cycles is my tea cycle, as in like tea that you drink. Here's how this works. I'm a coffee drinker. I drink coffee all day, every day, way too much of it. But I want to drink tea because I feel like it's sophisticated. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just like I have this imagination of like I'm going to come home and I'm going to pour a nice cup of tea and I'm going to sip it, maybe pinky up, and then I'm going to read a good book and it's like that's life. So here's what happens. I have this cycle where every couple months I get the urge to become a tea person and I go to David's Tea here in Brickell City Center and I peruse, you know, let me smell that, you know, oh. pretend like I know what I'm doing. And then I get a little bag of tea, I go home that night, I bring out a Japanese teapot and I put it in and I have these little cups which feel really sophisticated and then I pour it in and I sip it like, this is my new lifestyle. I'm a tea person now. I do that about three times. And then I don't even finish the bag, I forget about the tea and then about three months later I do it all over again because it's just the cycle. I'm, no matter how hard I try, I, can't, I cannot become a tea person. 
We live in a world of cycles. We create cycles for ourselves. And though some of our cycles are bizarre and funny and some of them are helpful and good for us, many of the cycles we create are actually destructive. Uh, they're dangerous and harmful. And we know that. We can identify those. We, we know the cycles that we fall into that are not for our good. And this book, the book of Judges, is all about cycles. They're repeated each chapter over and over and over again. We saw it kicked off last week in Judges chapter 1, where God has taken previously, before this book, he has rescued his people from Egypt. They're enslaved in Egypt for 430 years, Egypt being symbolic of death. They rescue, God rescues his people through Moses out of Egypt, leads them through the wilderness. And then he says, I'm going to bring you into the promised land, to life. And he uses Joshua to lead the people of God into the promised land. The people of God are trusting him. They're meditating on his word. They're following Joshua's leadership, and they are exhibiting brave faith. As they have very little military experience, they don't have nearly as many people as some of the people that they come up against when they begin to come up against Canaanite cities that are settled in the land. And they even conquer the unconquerable city of Jericho in a miraculous way. And Joshua dies, and the people of God have begun to settle in the lands. God's command is that they would establish a nation where they can freely serve and worship God, and they can be a beacon of God's grace and his glory to the surrounding nations. And now that Joshua has passed on, the book of Judges picks up, and the people of God have decided that they're no longer going to exhibit brave faith, but they're going to exhibit common sense faith. As they have to continue to settle more of the land and establish God's nation here, Israel, they decide, you know what, we're not going to listen to God's commands. We're going to do things like everyone else. You see, God tells the people to go into the land and to drive out the Canaanite people. The Canaanites were polytheistic pagan people who worshiped multiple gods and had many practices that uh, we would definitely define as evil, and they would not work in tandem with the commands and the law of God. So God says, drive them out when you conquer cities and villages. Drive them out. Don't plunder them and don't enslave them. Just drive them out because you're not going to coexist. And so they begin to say, well, it doesn't make any sense. Everybody else that conquers enslaves the people they conquer and they plunder them. And so guess what the people of God do? They say that we're going to follow common sense. We're going to do what everybody else is doing and we are going to enslave and to plunder the people that we conquer. And so God is angry, and he brings consequences upon them, and he says, guess what? Now the Canaanite people are not going to be removed from the land. They're going to be a thorn in your side. The people weep, and they repent, and they confess their sin, and God shows them grace, forgives them, and restores them. This is the cycle. And chapter two, guess what happens? They start it all over again. Here's what it says in Verse 11 and 12, the people begin the cycle by rebelling once again. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. This is the main God that the Canaanite people worshipped. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people, the peoples who were around them, and bowed down to them. You see, as we said last week, they have this common sense faith where they're beginning to pick and choose what they want to believe about God, where they want to follow him, where they want to follow their own instincts. 
their own common sense, and they have now reverted to worshiping the Canaanite gods, the god Baal, because they think that that is going to be better for them, for their success, for their happiness, for their wealth. And so they've decided to worship multiple, multiple gods. They're probably still worshiping the God of Israel, Yahweh, but they've decided to worship Baal as well. And you think to yourself, why in the world would they do this? You see, an idol is anything that is more fundamental to you, to your happiness, to life's meaning, or to your identity than God. Anything more fundamental to you than God is an idol. And they have decided to make Baal more fundamental to their life than God. They have forgotten that God brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into the promised land. Can you imagine? Brought them and their forefathers out of slavery to life, conquered Jericho, amazing victories. God has been working and saving them and delivering them time and time and time again. And now they're like, nah, we're going to worship Baal. You think to yourself, why would they do that? <laughs> you think, like, does it doesn't make any sense. Well, you see, what Baal promised was wealth and success. Remember, the Canaanite people are no longer driven out there together. The Israelites and the Canaanites are kind of moving and shaping each other and influencing each other. And the Canaanites have been influencing the Israelites by saying, listen, if you want to be wealthy and if you want to be successful and therefore if you want to be happy, you need to start worshiping Baal. Because Baal is the god of fertility. And that meant two things. One, it meant that Baal had the ability, they believed, to give you healthy, strong children, to make you multiply many, many kids. And Baal also was in control of the weather. So he would bring fertile land for crops and livestock. He would grow and expand your crops and bring health and strength to your livestock as well. You're like, well, not, okay, why would they, God of fertility, more kids, better crops? Why is that so attractive? Well, see, during this time period, you define success. Success was defined by how many kids you had and how many crops you had and how well your livestock were doing. Your wealth was literally measured by your crops and your livestock. And so here's what is being shared to the Israelite people, to the people of God. If you want to be happy, if you want to be wealthy, if you want to be successful, if you want to make something of your life, stop following God, Yahweh, all that. Start serving Baal because he can bring rain to the crops. He can bring you more kids. He can literally make you successful and healthy and happy. And the Israelites are like, great, sign me up. Awesome. That's what we want. That's what we're going to do. And so they rebel against God. And then hits the second rotation of the cycle of Judges. It says that God is angry. Second half of verse 12 and 14, it says, And they, the Israelites, provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth was another god. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The anger of the Lord was kindled and was growing against Israel. And I think as modern people, when we read passages like this and we see that God is angry, it's a little unsettling. We, we like God to be merciful and loving and kind and compassionate and patient, but angry, it's like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't like how that feels. I like God to be loving and merciful. Well, see, 
we can exhibit anger that is unhealthy and harmful and wrong. But anger doesn't have to be the opposite of love. In fact, there can be very healthy anger. Anger really can be an outworking of love. You see, parents who love their kids still get angry at them. And in the best moments when the anger is not wrong and misplaced, parents are angry at their kids for their choices and their decisions because they know that the choices and decisions that they're making are harmful. And it, they're gonna harm, it's going to harm their good. It's going to destroy their joy. That There's going to be consequences that are going to come because their kids are making these decisions that they can't see, but the parents know. They've lived it. And so it, bring, it, it kindles anger in parents when they look at their kids with love and say, don't make those decisions. That's a bad decision. That's not good for you. You see, God is our Father, and He loves His children. And His anger is an outworking of His love because He sees the choices and decisions that we make, and He knows that it is going to bring harm. It's going to destroy our joy. It's going to provide the opposite of what we think it will. And so His anger is kindled but it's motivated by his love, and so God actually allows consequences to come. He allows consequences to, to befall the Israelites, the people of God, who are making these really poor choices by worshiping idols, and that's the third rotation, is consequences. It says here in verses 14 and 15 that he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. The anger of the Lord is kindled against them as an outworking of his love, and he allows these consequences to take place. And the consequences that take place in the book of Judges is that he allows the people of God to be oppressed by their enemies. The irony here is really thick. The, the, Israelite, the, people of, the Israelites and the people of God are saying, we're not going to follow you, God. We're going to choose to worship Baal and these other idols because we believe that what the Canaanites are telling us and what culture is promoting to us is actually better for our health and for our success and for our wealth. So we're going to run after that. Thinking that worshiping these gods is going to deliver them and bring them salvation and bring them joy and bring them success. And in fact, what it does is enslave them. It provides them the very thing they think they're escaping by worshiping Baal and these other idols. You see, this is something that is true every single time, and we see it played out in this book very clearly. Idolatry always leads to slavery. Every single time. Idols promise a lot. They promise you all the things your hearts desire, but it never delivers upon it. In fact, you run to idols to find freedom, and what you end up finding is the complete opposite, which is slavery. And that's what happens to them. They're enslaved and oppressed by their enemies, and then the people repent. That's the fourth cycle. They, they realize the error of their ways and the choices that they've made are harmful and they shouldn't have been running after idols and they repent. It says in the passage that they're groaning and they're weeping as they recognize that they've made a mess of things, that they have decided to follow after Baal instead of God. And it's interesting 
because Baal is the Canaanite word for Lord. So they've exchanged one Lord, God, for another Lord, Baal. And they recognize the error of their ways and they repent. And as they repent, God restores them. He hears their cry and their confession and their repentance. And he's going to restore them. It's important to understand what repentance is. Repentance is to return. It means to return. You see, they they were walking one direction, walking towards idols, walking after Baal and listening to culture for what's going to bring success and happiness. And then as they recognize through consequences that they've made a mess of things, they have changed direction and gone to serve God once again. See, repentance is a changing of direction. It's not just simply an acknowledgement of wrong or a realization that you're facing consequences that you don't want to face. Consequences will never lead you to repentance. Consequences can make you aware that you've rebelled and made mistakes. But repentance comes through recognizing that you have presumed upon grace. You have forgotten God's love and that you've made a mess of things by choosing to follow after idols and you need to return back to God. And that's what the people of God do. They return. They realize they've made a mess of things. They look to God for deliverance and for grace. And he restores them. Verse 16 says, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. This is what God does all throughout this book. It's why it's called Judges. When the people of God finally repent and turn back to him, God raises up a judge who will deliver his people who will rescue them. This judge is both a savior as the judge will lead the people out of oppression and back to life, but he's also a Lord. He gives spiritual leadership and insight to the people. And and here's what happens. Every time God raises up a deliverer, a savior, a judge, the people of God listen and they follow. But when the judge dies, guess what happens? cycle kicks in again. They begin to think to themselves, well, maybe back to Baal, right? Maybe round two, round three, round four, round five. They keep perpetuating this cycle over and over again, and God keeps restoring them when they repent, regardless of their unfaithfulness, over and over again. You see, what we see here is that the false gods that the Canaanites promote and the culture promotes to the Israelites promise a lot, but they deliver nothing. You see, idols cannot be compassionate. Idols cannot be forgiving. Idols cannot be full of grace. Idols deliver nothing. In fact, their only power is to draw you in. They draw you in and then they not only give you nothing, but they strip away life. They're a thorn in your side. And yet what we do as people is we give idols power they don't possess and we follow them places we shouldn't go. You see, we perpetuate the same cycle in our lives. At least I do. We rebel. God is angry as an outworking of his love. He allows consequences. We face the consequences of our actions, right? We all do. And yet as we return to him, God is faithful to forgive and to restore Because we are people that are tempted with idols. We're living among idols, and they're constantly promoted to us and shared to us. John Calvin, who is a reformer and theologian, 
he said that our nature is a perpetual factory of idols, that our heart is a factory of idols. It's really helpful insight because oftentimes if you're like me, you think about idols, you don't think about maybe the little statues, but you think about things that we worship and we make more fundamental than God. Remember, an idol is anything you make more fundamental than God. It doesn't have to be a little statue. It can be concrete things. That's typically where our minds go, right? Concrete things like your business, your career, a relationship, your family, your friends, your bank account, your possessions, your ministry, your education, your experiences. Anything that is more fundamental to you and your life and your life's meaning and your happiness and your identity than God is an idol. And we typically think about all those different concrete things. But if our heart is a factory of idols, that means that not only are idols things that tempt us from the outside, things that culture promotes and others promote that we think, oh, maybe that's a better path to take. But if our heart is a factory of idols, then we actually create idols ourselves. Our own heart is producing idols. And here's why that's a little haunting. is because anything that we create becomes very dear to us. When you make something, it becomes dear to you. Some of us still have like pictures we drew when we were six years old. And it looks horrible, but it's like, I made it. You know, I got to save it. When we create things, when we manufacture things, they become dear to us. They're hard to let go. And we create idols from the outflow of our heart, and we attach them to concrete things. See, the idols that our heart creates are things like control, comfort, need to feel accepted, achievement, fear, pride, religion, independence, power, materialism, codependence. See, our heart produces these things where we need them, need to feel in control, need to feel powerful, need to achieve, need to be independent. And we begin to attach these idols that we have created from the factory of our heart to concrete things like our business, like relationships, like our bank account, like our possessions, like our experiences, like our education. And then we have made good things because all of those things are good things. We've turned them into ultimate things where they have become now more fundamental to us than God. You can imagine a story where there's a man who thinks back on his life before he came to faith in Christ, and he looks back and he's appalled at the way that he treated people. Some of us are there, right? You look back on your life before you became a Christian, before you came to believe in saving faith in Christ, and you're just appalled at the way that you lived. And this man looks back on his life and he's appalled the way that he treated people, and, and specifically he's appalled at the way that he treated members of the opposite sex. He thinks, I can't believe that I treated people that way. I, tre- I used romance as a means to an end, and sex was a conquest. It wasn't a gift. It was a conquest. But then as he begins to share his life, he, he came to receive the grace of God, the forgiveness of God through faith in Christ, and his, his thoughts changed, and his desires changed, and his life began to change. 
Many of us have that story. We know that, what it feels like to see your desires and your heart and your mind change as God is working in and through you through the Holy Spirit as you've come to faith. You begin that process of transformation that God is renewing you. But here's a question. Obviously, he had idols that his heart produced that he attached to things like relationships, like sex. Before he became a follower of Christ, did they go away? Because you can imagine what's happening now with this man is that he's now in the church and he's growing in his faith. But he constantly gets a similar complaint, which is, hey, whenever you're in community group, whenever you're in Bible study, you're a little abrasive and argumentative. And and I know now that you're married and you view romance not as a means to an end and sex now is a gift, not a conquest, but In your marriage, you constantly assert that you're right with your spouse. And oftentimes, honestly, in many conversations that you're in, you just dominate the conversation. You don't let anyone else speak. You see, previously, before this person came to believe in faith in Christ, they had an idol of power. Their heart manufactured this idol of power, and it was attached to relationships and to sex. And the need to feel in control and to feel powerful over another made sex a conquest and romance a means to an end. And really, you was, it motivated that person to treat people in a really despicable way. But now that idol is still present. It's just attached to something that's more generally accepted, like Bible study. Or a conversation between, with he and his spouse. See, it's still an idol, It's still an idol whether or not it's attached to something that would be frowned upon or something that is accepted. It's still sin. You see, idols and idol worship is not one of many sins. It's the very reason that we sin. It's the very reason that we sin. Because what we do is we create functional saviors in our life. That's what these things are. We need to feel powerful, need to feel in control, need to feel loved, need to feel accepted need to feel like I've achieved, need to feel like other people see that recognition, need to feel independent. And we attach them to these good things that we make into ultimate things in our life, and they become our saviors. That's where we're going to find success. That's where we're going to find happiness. That's where we're going to feel as if we've made it. There's two questions that you can ask yourself that really help to reveal what idols you struggle with, because here's the reality. We all do. Ask yourself this question. Life only has meaning if. Maybe you think life only has meaning if I achieve in my career. If I don't achieve in my career, I don't think life has meaning. Life only has meaning if I find romance and I get married and I experience that love. Life only has meaning if I can live a life of comfort and retire early. Life only has meaning if, or maybe another way, another question to ask is, I only have worth if. I only have worth if people recognize that I have a great work ethic. I only have worth if people notice that I'm creative. I only have worth if I feel needed in my relationships. I only have worth if I feel as if I'm independent and in control of my life. 
I only have worth if other people in my religious community notice and tell me that I'm super spiritual. We have all of these things. You see, what idols do, they have something in common. Regardless of what the idol is that you're chasing, the idol that you're struggling with, or that I'm struggling with, they do the same thing, which is they make you the savior of your life. You want to know one of the most dangerous things that you can hear that you're going you're gonna to find tonight when you go on Instagram? You're going to see this. Some way, shape, or form. Follow your heart. That is like the worst advice ever. Because your heart is a factory of idols. You're attaching all of these things that you need to feel successful and happy and as if your life is, has meaning. You're attaching it to things and turning them into idols and you follow your heart. That's a really dangerous thing to do. Because idols always tell you, you're the savior of your own life. You're in control. Do what you think is best. You know best. Creates an idol. And once an idol has a hold of you, it tells you to sacrifice for it. Sacrifice your family and friends for your work. Sacrifice generosity for your bank account. Sacrifice purity for that hopeful relationship that you're in. Sacrifice faith for pleasure. Idols constantly tell you to sacrifice things for them. See, they're functional saviors. And they're thorns in our side that are choking out life and goodness in us as we run after them. You see, this is true in the book of Judges as they repeat this cycle over and over again and keep running back to idols. And here's what's really dangerous is when you fall into this cycle of running after idols and rebelling against God, and God's love brings about anger where consequences happen and you repent and you return to God and he forgives you, and you repeat this cycle over and over and over again, chasing after idols, not identifying them, not asking God to come speak in and break the cycle it's dangerous because it only gets worse and worse and worse. This book, every chapter gets worse. I mean, it gets horrific. Remember, that's why I sent out that resource last week to like help us think about what's to come. Next week, I'm not even going to spoil it, but a sword gets stuck in a guy's stomach. It's out of control. I mean, it's out of control, guys. But as you repeat these cycles of idolatry and of rebelling against God, it just gets worse. There's a picture of that here in verse 17 where very explicit and provocative verse says yet they did not this is the people of God the Israelites they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them that's a provocative image they whored after other gods and bowed down to them why the explicit language you see we're to see that they gave all of themselves to these idols. They were vulnerable. They thought these idols were going to provide love and satisfaction and acceptance. The idols would make them feel worthy, make them feel like their life had meaning. But what they found was that they were being used. They were being used. See, God is communicating something here, and that is that all idolatry is adultery. It's adultery. You see, God does not want you to become a better, more moral Christian citizen. That's not God's goal and endeavor for you. It's not his heart's desire. God wants to know you. He wants you to know his love, and he wants you to love him in return. 
All throughout the scripture, there's this language that is used of God being your bridegroom, of Christ being your bridegroom. You are the bride, Christ is the bridegroom. This marriage language. And a marriage is a legal, it's a legal commitment, it's an exclusive commitment, but it's much more than that. A marriage is a place where you develop intimacy and you deepen your understanding of the other and you exhibit selfless love towards the other. And the language here of our relationship with God is that God is married to you through faith. Christ is your bridegroom. It's to not only be exclusive where you don't run after idols, but also a place of intimacy and growing in understanding and a place of selfless love. And when we run after idols and chase after idols, what are we committing? Adultery. Committing adultery. One of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Hosea. I'll close with this. Hosea was a man of God, and he was a prophet of God. And here's what God said to him. He said, I want you to go and marry a woman named Gomer, who is an adulteress, and who has sold herself into slave prostitution. Hosea is a man of God and a prophet of God, called to marry a woman who is an adulteress and a prostitute. It says this in chapter 3 of Hosea. The Lord said to me, to Gomer, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Notice the connection. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. It would have been a way to sacrifice to the gods. He tells Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to marry and love a woman who is an adulteress and who has sold herself into slave prostitution. She wants nothing to do with you. I want you to go love her and marry her. Even as I, God, love my people who run after idols. I want you to model that. My love for my people, Hosea, and the way that you marry this woman. So, says that Hosea, he says, I, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver because she was in slave prostitution and a homer and a lethitch of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. I want you to love me and no one else, and I will love you. See, this is a picture of, of God's love to us. It's a foreshadow of Christ who loves you, his church. And though you and me are idolaters and therefore we are adulterers, we manufacture idols in our heart and we attach them to good things and we turn them into ultimate things and we will sacrifice for them and we give power to idols that they do not possess because we believe that they will bring satisfaction and happiness to us. We rebel against God and we create these cycles in our life that are detrimental and harmful Yet God loves idolaters. He loves those who commit adultery, who cheat on him with other gods and idols. He loves us. And he didn't pay 15 shekels of silver for you. He paid his life. Christ gave his life for you as a payment that you might be established with him in a relationship through faith. A marriage covenant. And he has promised to love you. And he asks you to love him in return. Don't run after other gods. Don't chase after other idols. Don't perpetuate this cycle. Love me, God says, as I have loved you. 
He has run after you. He has pr- paid the price for you and entered into a covenanted relationship that is like a marriage through faith. And he says, love me as I have loved you. You see, the cycles that we perpetuate of idol worship are not broken through your religious effort, through just trying harder and saying, this week I'm going to get better. It is broken by you not forgetting that God loves you. It is broken by remembering that you have been bought with a price. And though you run away and though you're influenced to chase after idols and your heart even manufactures them, God has chosen to love you. And so you come back to him in repentance and you say, God, I don't deserve your love, but I'm asking for you to restore me. I'm asking you to break this cycle. I'm asking you to give me strength. Because God has actually promised to you that he is going to purify you and to cleanse you and me as we continue to walk with him in this life of faith. So I want to leave you with this truth from Ephesians 5. And I pray that this would sink deep in your heart that God would use this to break the cycle of idolatry that you and me struggle with and that you might be encouraged of God's love for you. Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. It's a price he paid. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church, that's you, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is my prayer to sink deep into. This is the kind of love that God has for you. That he loves you even when you run away from him. That he's actually in the process of cleansing and sanctifying you. So as we repent, we repent because we return back to God's love. Not because we've earned it or we deserve it. Because it's freely offered. Will you pray with me? God, we truly don't deserve your love. We don't. We manufacture idols in our heart and we chase after them and we attach them to to good things. And those good things become ultimate things and Lord, we we fail to see that meaning and joy comes in you is found in you, that our identity is found in you. Lord, tonight I pray that as we think on your word, Lord, as you humble our hearts, that we would be moved to know that you love us, even when we don't love you, even when we run away from you and we chase after things that will not deliver what we think they will. Holy Spirit, remind us of your love. We pray tonight that you would break the cycles that we perpetuate. You would give us that wisdom, that insight, and that strength to be motivated out of love, to run back to you, to turn back to you. Bring about repentance in that way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Tonight as we prepare to come to the table we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have a, a song of reflection. If you're here tonight and you believe in faith in Jesus Christ and you, you hear that, that Christ is your bridegroom, that he loves you, regardless of what you did last night or this week and the idols that you've chased after, you have received the grace and the love of God through faith. 
that Christ is your Savior and your Lord, even though you run after other lords at times. That this table is for you. It's a table of faith, faith in Jesus Christ. Not a table of cross bridge. It doesn't matter your denominational affiliation, what kind of church you grew up in. If you believe in Jesus, this table is for you. And I pray that this table would be a source of strength and grace to you, that as you partake of it in a moment, that you would know that the cycles in your life can be broken through the grace and strength of Christ. If you're here tonight and you're still processing faith and you wouldn't claim to believe in Jesus as your Savior, then I want to encourage you to not come to the table when we do because it is a table of faith. But I want you to know that you can belong to this community before you believe. And I would love to talk with you about your doubts and your questions because I walk through them too. But I hope you take this time to reflect on the grace of God that's freely offered to you to process what is it that is keeping you from believing in Jesus Christ. So you reflect with me as we listen to the band play this song, and then I'll invite you forward to partake of communion afterwards. Didn't I conquer this last year? Tell me what I missed, cause I fear that it's coming back up again. Must be something I ate, some song, some show, some hate. The devil wants to extend the game free throws and when he ends he wants to make a sequel cause if he has another chance he feels like he can take my joy, my peace my faith see the devil will learn from your mistakes even if you don't that's how he keeps you in cycles 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 but i'm not going in cycles cycles This will end like I want it to. I win. The enemy will have to lose again. See, I'm a different fighter now. And I have got to thank. Because his joy is my strength. See, the devil will learn it's a mistake when I am sure 
not going in cycles. I'm not going in cycles. I'm gonna break these cycles. I'm not going in cycles. Oh, cycles of depressions, of addiction cycles. I'm not going in cycles. Oh, so Lord, help me to be free from all of my past sins. See, your love is enough to make me new and help me in these cycles. Cycles, help me in these cycles. I don't want to go in. I refuse to go in cycles. Work on me, Jesus. Work on me, Jesus. I don't want to go in. Church, won't you stand and help us sing? There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. To break every cycle, to break every cycle. We sing it again. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. To what? To break every cycle. To break every cycle, to break all these cycles, to break every cycle, generational cycle, financial all these painful relational. We give it all up to you, God. We pray that you would help us. Oh, help us with these cycles, God. Cycles. We know and believe, Father, that you will help us, Father, to break these cycles, Lord. Jesus, as a as a fellow idol factory God and manufacturer, Lord, and as one who has dealt with cycles, I believe, Father, that in the name of Jesus, there is power to break them. And so, Lord, let this be our prayer that we sing. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus to break every cycle, cycle, to break every cycle, to break all these 
to break every to break all these we give it all up to you God cycle amen well as you prepare to come to the table I'm going to ask our deacons to come forward this is a means of grace for you through faith to see God break cycles in your life we're going to have wine on this side and grape juice on this side and in a moment I'll invite you to come forward and take the bread and dip it in the wine or the grape juice and partake of it up here and return back to your seat Listen to the words from the Apostle Paul as he writes in 1 Corinthians 11, shares with you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. You proclaim strength and grace to break cycles. So when you're ready, come forward and taste and see that the Lord is good to you. Showing mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. You delight in showing mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. You delight in showing mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You delight in showing mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment.
my past embrace. When you're finished, won't you stand, church? My sins forgiven. I'm blameless in your sight. My history rewritten. My past embrace. My sins forgiven. I'm blameless in your sight. My history rewritten. Delight in showing mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You delight in showing mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Oh, love, great love. Not be found in you. There will never be a day. You are uncertain of the ones you choose. Cause you delight in showing mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You delight in showing mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We sing, I will wait. So I will wait. And spend my days loving the one who has raised me up from death to life, from wrong to right. You're making all things beautiful. So I will wake and spend my days loving the one who has raised me up from death to life, from wrong to right. You're making all. So I'll awake. So I'll Spend my days loving the one who has raised me up from death to life, from wrong to right. You're making all things beautiful. So I will awake and spend my days loving the one who has raised me up from death to life, from wrong to right. You're making all Mercy triumphs over judgment. You delight in showing mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
We know that you delight in showing mercy. Yes, you do, God. And mercy triumphs over judgment. You delight in showing mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. Amen. We're so glad that you stay with us to worship. You joined us this evening. I want to share with you a few upcoming events. If you have your worship program, pull it out, look at it. There's nothing listed there. That's why uh, I'm telling you to text in. Uh, it, we make it super simple, super modern. That's us. If you text in uh, the word iPhone or Google, depending on whether you're iPhone or er everything else, uh, you can text in and get our app. And on our app, you can get connected to a community group, to different serve opportunities, different events that are happening. And one of the events that is happening uh, in a couple weeks is a cookout with Touching Miami with Love. And uh, yeah, who's excited about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, who's excited about that? Yeah. yeah. It's the best. I'm telling you, you play with kids, you do face painting, you play basketball, you dunk on them. It's amazing. It's an <laughs> awesome time. You cook burgers. They, it's, I'm telling you, you want to be there. So you can see it's right there, July 24th, 5 p.m. right here in Overtown. We love Touching Miami with Love and what they're doing for the city. Want to encourage you to look now, get out of work early, get over there and uh, care on some, love on some kids and spend some time and have a good time serving uh, those in our community. And so with that, uh, let me leave you with this benediction. May the grace of God, the Father, and the love of the Son, and the strength of the Holy Spirit be with you this week as God breaks cycles in your life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's see you in the back. I didn't forget. Guys, we, uh, we're, we're sending out uh, one of our own, one of our members. Leanna tonight is her last night with us. And so uh, we're going to pray over her and send her out as God is calling her to Austin, Texas. Uh, we're sad that God's calling her away, but we know that it is for her good and that he is working in her life. And we want to celebrate uh, the time that she was with us and just play, uh, pray a blessing over her. So if you want to come up here right now as we close our service and lay a hand on her as we send her out, we would love to do that, and then we'll hang out in the back and have some snacks. Everybody, come on in, lay a hand. God, we thank you for Leanna. We thank you for the blessing that she's been to this community for the many years that you've brought her here. Lord, the way that you used her as a beacon of your grace and your love and in Miami City Ballet and in her friend group and here at this church. Thank you for her service, for her kindness and, and gentleness and, and love and strength that she's displayed in this community. Lord, we pray that as we, as we mourn uh, her leaving, uh, Lord, we are, we're honest, it's not easy for us, but we're excited about what you're doing in her life. We know that she is your daughter and that you are doing this for her good. You're bringing her to a new community that she will be a beacon of light to, and we pray that you would 
bless her and protect her, that you would give her strength in those moments when it's difficult, that you would be there to give peace. Lord, that you would encourage her, that you are walking with her, that you are for her and with her at all times. And Lord, we pray that we would uh, see her often as she 